Flying Bull Productions presents Laugh, Literature, and Film. It's the good stuff. Yeah. Episode 148. Over there is your host, Mr. Ryan Bull. How are you, sir? Doing well. I'm a co-host, Richard Lusk. <laughs> Today's movie is The Nice Guys. You're a private investigator? My profession is very complicated, okay? It's nuanced. That is a lot of, that's a lot of blood. You beat people up and charge money? Yeah. Sad, isn't it? How much would you charge to beat up my friend Janet? What? How much you got? 30 bucks? That's good. This conversation no is over. The mob is trying to spread its operation to Los Angeles. Somehow, my daughter Amelia is involved. Please, find her. You seen this girl? Who's in it for me? Oh, we can do this the easy way. No! We're currently doing it the easy way. Whatever happened to offering me 20 bucks? It's the recession. This is a movie about nice guys. Yeah, two of them. Yep. Russell Crowe and Ryan Gosling. Not just one. Holland March is a, according to IMDb, is a down on his luck private eye in 1977 Los Angeles. And Jackson Healy, played by Russell Crowe, is a hired enforcer who hurts people for a living. Fate turns them into unlikely partners after a young woman named Amelia mysteriously disappears. And it goes on from there. I'm not going to do anything because I think IMDb sometimes puts in spoilers. This is written and directed by uh, Shane Black of Lethal Weapon fame. He was also an actor in Predator. Oh, he acted in the original Predator? I didn't know that. I know he's the director in the upcoming Predator movie, and he's done a couple other ones. Probably the one our audiences had the best chance of seeing was Iron Man 3. And this movie has a lot of similarities to Iron Man 3. Iron Man 3 is the 10th highest grossing movie of all time. Wow. Isn't that a little hard to believe? It's just below Frozen and just above Minions. It did really, really well overseas. Not so much over here, but it did really well overseas. This movie is not a superhero movie, but it, it plays around with some action conventions that I think we want to get into a little bit. Uh, you seem to enjoy this movie a great deal. I saw, I heard you over there guffawing a few times. I laughed through this whole film. This uh, struck my funny bone. I kind of like two-man comedy teams. Mm-hmm. I like when both of them are able to be the funny guy. Neither has to be the straight guy for the joke set up. Uh, I think there was rarely a scene in this film that I didn't chuckle at. It's kind of like the Bid Lebowski meets Lethal Weapon. That's how I described it later in the evening to some people we were playing cards with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it makes sense because, like you said, Shane Black wrote Lethal Weapon. I think he has a great love for those types of films, heavily influenced by movies like the Bid Lebowski um, Another film he had, uh, Shane Black wrote and directed Kiss Kiss Bang Bang with Robert Downey Jr. and Val Kilmer. I found it to be great. And in addition to Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe's performance, uh, the little girl who's playing Holly March and Gory Rice, she was fantastic. She was the moral center of the movie. And I think she's what kept you rooting for these guys because they both clearly love her she's playing ryan gosling's daughter russell crowe also seems to really take a liking yeah i don't know if he loves her though like doesn't love her but i mean 
I think he appreciates her innocence or what she represents. He's kind of like an uncle almost to her. In hard, this film. hard to be a f- pretty much a first time actor or actress, especially a younger one, and play in between two guys that are fairly well seasoned. Uh, as Russell Crowe, no, uh, no, Ryan Gosling put it at the Oscars. He says we have two Academy Awards between us. <laughs> Russell Crowe was like, "You don't have an Academy Award." He goes, "Yeah, well, agree to disagree." <laughs> So that was good stuff. That's the kind of banter that you find in this movie, uh, The Dice Guys. So owes a lot to that movie, like you said, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. And I enjoyed it as well. I mean, I'd recommend it. It's probably near the top of my movies for this year. But you were overwhelmed to the point where you said, this has probably been the best movie I've seen all year. Yeah, and I'm wondering if you still feel that way. Yeah, I still think I would put this up at number one. I think there are a lot of films competing for that number one spot, but... I thoroughly enjoyed it. It brought everything I need. It had action. It had drama, comedy, uh, an incoherent plot that I would have trouble telling you straight through what was going on. Mm-hmm. But I didn't really care. You know, from scene to scene, I knew what the characters' motivations were, and I was with them. And like I said, I laughed. I cannot wait to watch this film again. Oh, okay. Are you going to go see it in the theater again? Or? I don't. It's hard for me to go see movies a second time in theaters because there's always something else to prepare for right. for this show. But I could see this as one of those movies that becomes a remote stopper. If you're flipping through the channels and this is on, you stop and you watch. Yeah, I think uh, like the big Lebowski, but Lebowski and Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, um, because you can jump into the banter mm-hmm. and some lines come off as being funny. Maybe not even in context, but just but when you see those two guys on screen together, there's a scene in the middle of the movie where they have a conversation with Kim Basinger and, uh, (laughs) it's just, they go back and forth with some ironic statements and then some maybe not so, uh, level headed things or, you know, they're not really clear on what they're saying. And I'm trying to talk around it a little bit, which may be kind of confusing for our listeners, but it's those moments when the two of them are interacting with other people that they really shine. When they interact with each other, it's kind of funny as well, but some of that humor might be comedic. It's kind of when they have to encounter the world outside. Well, they're both able to give each other a hard time and both able to get the better at the other guy in, re- in response. Like, a, a lot of times in these buddy movies, one guy is clearly superior to the other. Yeah. That's... I didn't feel like one was superior to the other in this film. Yeah, but that's, that, that was one of the... Maybe one of the drawbacks I had, and one of the questions I had for Ooh, you is, okay. whose movie is it? Like, who, who's, who would you, if you said this is, like, who's playing the the partner role, or, like, who's the main driving force in the movie? And I, I don't really know if I have an answer for that. I think Ryan Gosling's a little funnier than Russell Crowe. I think I laughed more at Gosling, but I think I laughed a little harder at Russell Crowe. Yeah, but if you say, whose story is it, I guess? Not whose performance steals the movie and who do you like better, but who is he writing the story for to tell? I don't, I, I think he really is trying to write for both. Apparently, this was supposed to be a TV series at first. That was the original mm-hmm. idea and that was the way they kicked it around. And I don't think it ever got past even, you know, the initial pilot stage, you know, maybe even a spec script and Shane Black decides to turn it into a film. Okay. So maybe this will become an. A, a series later on down the road. Uh, we're looking at next year. They're making a Lethal Weapon TV show. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. I watched the 
preview trailer yeah. for that. Damien Way or Damon Wayans oh, okay. is playing the Danny Glover part. Uh-huh. It's just weird. Yeah. Well, I mean, so. good luck to that. I this movie is set up for it, I don't want to say it's set up for a sequel because it ends you know, it's on a satisfactory note for what it's worth, but uh I could see I would want to see these two guys in another film. I don't know if it has to be this film. I don't know if it has to be the nice guys because I, like I said, I had a problem with which character I sort of aligned with. I think Russell Crowe has the arc though. I mean, he has the character arc that as a traditional story writing thing or a screen play. So he's who concept. you think is the main character. Well, I don't know. You can make an argument for either one. What I want them to do is the August Wilson challenge. Have them play these ba- same basic characters, but put them in each decade of the 20th century. Oh. So then we get to see them in the 80s, the 90s, even go back yeah, to could, the 10s. Could be interesting, too. I mean, I feel like they could team up. To me, they feel a lot like uh, the Butch Cassidy and Sundance. The Robert Redford and yeah. Paul Newman team up. Yeah, those are the, the kind of tropes that Black is dealing in. So, I mean, he's pretty good at, at writing uh, dialogue between two characters. Plus, are we going to look back and say this is a career renaissance moment for Russell Crowe? He was one of the topmost actors, late 90s, early 2000s, coming off Gladiator, The Insider, L.A. Confidential, Fit Trim. He was hunky. He started doing some rom-coms, right? And mm. then he got fat <laughs> and stopped doing films. But now he's somewhere in between a fat Elvis and a chubby John Wayne. Okay. Right? Like John Wayne towards the end of his career still was the action John Wayne, but he wasn't quite the same. And fat Elvis is kind of goofy. To me, Russell Crowe doesn't care. Russell Crowe is fat Elvis. Still belting out with, the tunes. With, with some John Wayne and throwing, I don't I, know, something else. Clint Eastwood? A little Clint Eastwood? I think he has to be. Well, Clint Eastwood was still Clint Eastwood all the way up until his last movie. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, there's still, still there's some grizzle there. I What I like about him is he is willing to step back and let Gosling do his thing here. And he's playing, he, he is underplaying this role. Well, there's Go- no ego. <clears throat> yeah, right. there's no ego in the character. And I think, uh, I think we've mentioned this before, but in the movie Double Indemnity, um, the Edward G. Robinson is used to being a leading man, but he decided to take a back, you know, take a, uh, supporting role. And he got the best actor nomination for the role. I mean, that happens <clears throat> in movies. And I think it's, sort of happening with Russell Crowe, but I don't know. He's, he's making weird choices on the movies that he does. And, uh, like he shows up randomly in like karate movies. And I think the last thing I saw him was on HBO. He owned a winery or something. Oh yeah. So a good year. He was in the man with the iron fist. Yeah. So he did lay Miz and people gave him a hard time. He's like, I don't care. He's just working. And I don't know if it makes, if, if this choice to do the nice guys was any different than any of those other choices. And frankly, I don't know if this movie is going to make any money. I don't know if it'll make back its money. Which is a shame, because I think this is a really fun movie. I'd love to see this movie nominated for some Academy Awards. Best Supporting Actor twice. Oh, that for would be both hilarious. of these guys? Yeah. They don't get nominated for lead. I don't they think you could. nominated for Supporting. I, you know that Angori Rice, she could get a Best Nomination, Best supporting Actress action. nomination. To me, she's like she reminds me of a young Natalie Portman. She just seems wise beyond her years but she also plays well and she you know what she's playing at the same level even though she's doing smarter things and it's not so slapsticky 
she's at the same level of confidence that those other two actors are. Mm-hmm. The One of the problems I have with the film are the secondary and tertiary characters because they do not reach the same heights as Gosling and Crow. For example, Margaret Qualley, who plays Amelia, she's mm-hmm. sort of the MacGuffin of the movie or one of the MacGuffins. There's a lot of flopping MacGuffins going on. There's more MacGuffins <laughs> out there than like a like a flock of puffins. Mm-hmm. But uh, it seemed to me like she's playing in a community drama production of Guys and Dolls. I don't really know if it's, that's her fault or the, or the director's, but it, there's a dissonance there with her performance. She had a weird part uh, for what she's supposed to do, and she kind of she doesn't like her parent. I'll say that. Mm. And she's also on the TV show The Leftovers. Right. And there's a lot of friction between her and her parent on that show. Yeah, I don't think so I like her much on that show either. But is she trying to distance herself so it feels like a separate character? And then maybe that's just bad casting. I, I don't know. Because that's I, I kept thinking, where have I seen this girl? Where have I seen this girl? And then I didn't realize until afterwards. Oh, yeah, she's in The Leftovers. She's that girl I don't like from The Leftovers. Yeah. But I didn't like her for different reasons on The Leftovers. Although she does make some of the same stupid types of decisions in this movie. There's another character, John Boy, mm-hmm. is the character played by Matt Bomer. You probably remember the actor from the Magic Mike movies. <laughs> but no, I'm not as comfortable with watching those as you are. I doubt he was playing a uh, uh, contract killer in those movies. But in this movie, they set him up to be the menacing central villain in a way. But when he makes his appearance, to me, he's, he's just not that impressive. And there's something that's misfiring there. He, When I looked at him, I'm like, is that James Marsden? The guy yeah, who played Cyclops in the first X-Men movies? Yeah. There were a lot of times when you're looking at the guys on the screen, the tertiary characters are like, I, who is that guy? You almost felt like they forgot to take the double out of the scene. <laughs> you know, like they'd done the lighting setup. All right, uh, we're waiting for James Marsden uh, to get to set. No, just just roll the scene. <laughs> yeah. Just roll the scene. Well, who was the, the the guy that played? He looked like Ben Stiller, like a young Ben Stiller, Blueface. Uh, oh, Blueface was played by Blow Nap. Bo Nap. Bo Nap. Yeah. Who? Bo Nap. <laughs> you know why we think we know him? He was in The Signal. He was the best friend in the movie The Signal. Yeah, I never finished. <laughs> okay, well, get the signal. yeah, he was also in. A great guilty pleasure movie of mine, No One Lives, starring Luke Evans. But he also does sort of look like, uh, I thought you were going to say Odd Thomas. He does sort of look like uh, Ben Stiller, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I see that now. But or, I or, can't, like, Ben Stiller had a smurf thrown at his face really hard, <laughs> so it distorted his face a little bit and gave him a blue face. I can't tell if uh, Black wants all these characters to play weird and over the top just to compare to have them compare against Gosling or Crow, or if it's that Gosling or Crow are just that good. I mean, I, mm-hmm. all right, sports metaphors can be sort of tiresome. They don't always work for people who don't really understand. But when you have, well, I mean, generally don't a watch, metaphor doesn't work but, if you don't understand it. Well, I mean, they can be tiresome. <laughs> like generally, I find that most of my comparisons are to football or to food. <laughs> but the sports metaphor that makes sense for me and these tertiary characters is in movies. It seems like they should be acting in service to a bigger goal, like offensive linemen. You don't know who they are really. Mm-hmm. These guys seem to be acting in such a way that draws attention to themselves when they really shouldn't be like a, like a wide receiver that's open 
all the time just because, you know, the quarterback's been sacked or whatever and every, no one's following him around. This, this metaphor is very stretched and ridiculous. But if a corner comes off the edge on a blind blitz and he gets a blindside sack and nobody's paying attention to him, he really shouldn't do a sack dance. <laughs> and that's what these actors seem to be doing to me. I, I, they're overplaying it. I don't know. I might be wrong. Yeah, I definitely think Margaret Qualley was overdoing it. I like Keith David. He's one of the he baddies great. in here. He's awesome. Every time I see that guy, I think of the movie. Uh, they Live? No. Uh, Where he has one of the all-time great fight scenes with Rowdy Roddy Viper. Oh, was that him? Yeah. Oh, no. I think of the, the menacing character from a Darren Aronofsky movie. Uh, Requiem for a Dream. Oh, yeah, yeah. At the end. Oh, every time I see him. And he's proof that black don't crack. That guy. Uh, clearly the best of the henchmen in the movie. Yeah, I thought Kim Basinger was all right in her role. The problem is she didn't look like her daughter at all. I thought it was a statue of Kim Basinger, like a porcelain doll. I I can't imagine that her f- she is not able to emote. Oh, I can all the Botox. Yeah, but is it Botox or is it plastic surgery or? I, I don't know. I just I, I thought that was miscasting because she didn't look anything like her daughter. There's so many other actresses you could have gotten Sandra Bullock. Uh, Jennifer Conley. You sort of have an insane uh, spoiler that you've just given away inadvertently, but there you go. Score another three for Paul. (laughs) Uh, Okay, you you say that's a spoiler, but... Well, you danced around it earlier, and now you're back on it. Did I? Yeah. So we don't want to spoil it. There's enough other stuff that gets revealed. Like, no. <laughs> like this, for instance, this character gets killed. Yeah, I, I thought this movie also has a lot of little in jokes. There are signs that are always going by. Did you notice who's playing at the comedy store? Who's the lead? I did act? Uh, Tim Allen. Tim Allen, yeah. Tim Allen's off in there. And I noticed posters for Jaws 2, which I wasn't sure that came out in 77 because uh, it seems. Apparently, that was wrong. It came out the following year. Ooh, and, and an and anachronism. That I picked out on my own. But Jaws should have still been around. I mean, I, I would have liked seeing Jaws. And then that would have been an homage to the fact that movies like that are still, um, you know, in that time era. We're in movie theaters for years. Mm-hmm. You know, like Star Wars was still around at the beginning of the summer and at the end of the summer. Yeah. So. But I felt like I was in the 70s. Now, I have no knowledge of what the 70s were actually yeah. like because I wasn't there. But I felt transported to that. There were lots of times the camera would lift up and show you the L.A. landscape. Yeah, they did a lot of work with that. And, and they made it real to me. I mean, I was 10 years old at the time. And, you know, 12, 13 when the, uh, <clears throat> when the 70s ended. So that, that's a pretty prominent time for me. And I recognize some of the, like, do you know Gil Gerard? No. He's the character that plays Paulson in the movie. He was uh, in my favorite tv show at the time buck rogers in the 25th century he was buck rogers he was all over tvs and movie tv movies and movies mm-hmm. like this um so i you know that was sort of a callback for me just having that character there and i think he did that with kim basinger as well maybe the tie-in with um la confidential where russell crowe plays sort of a tough guy at, uh he, he's an enforcer in that enforcer film too. yeah did you know um chet the kid that's the DJ in the movie, the one that, that takes them to the yeah, first yeah. crime scene, that's uh, Jack Kilmer's son. I mean, sorry, uh, Val Kilmer's son. His The actor's name is Jack Kilmer. So he's the son of Val Kilmer and Joanne Waller. Yeah, he kind of looks a little bit like Val Kilmer. I didn't yeah, think but... about that until afterwards. I thought that was pretty interesting. Yeah, no, I, I thought casting was good. I thought uh, 
the the cinematography was good. I felt transported to the world. There was clearly a lot of scene uh, replacement stuff in this. Even just, you know, shots of streets, you're going to have to add in cars. Yeah, the first, very first shot is heavily CGI'd, but they're getting so good with CGI, you really, you really can't tell. And the rest of the movie is so, uh, has that veneer over it that it doesn't seem to stick out as much. Oh, as I bet the set the past, replacement so. was crazy. And this had a budget of, how much did you tell me earlier? Well, that 50 million, I think is what I said. It's yeah. only made back three and a half by the time. Uh, 12 million. Oh yeah, that's right. You're right. We talked day, about that. Yeah, yeah we about talked about twelve that. and a half. But clearly, there's a lot of money going to visual effects, and you don't yep. always see it. I, I, there's some things I want to talk about though in spoilers because this movie was on the shelf for a while, and there are some places where they dropped off. Where it surprises me, given the amount amount of CGI and replacement that they did, there are some things that are just kind of weird. Maybe you can clarify them okay. for me, but I don't want to spoil it for anybody. So. We're both recommending yeah, this. Yeah, we're recommending Especially it. if you like the Big Lebowski, any of these kind of yeah, it's not, a, it's not as good as the Big Lebowski. I'll talk about that. But it's in, the, it's in the flavor? It might be in the same vein. I, we had someone that we played poker with mention how much... I, how, I think most of the table didn't like the Big Lebowski. The exception being uh, yes. uh, us and Pete, our other friend who sometimes co-hosts with us, the Magastar. Mm-hmm. He was on our uh, Fury Road show um yeah and then everybody else was just like oh i didn't like that movie. so if you say big lebowski those guys might not want to see this movie and i think that this movie might have more to offer them uh just because it's more accessible and if you're willing to just give up on some weird convolutions then you could really enjoy the movie like well, you, you said, have to you, do the same thing for Lebowski. Lebowski is one of those movies that, just, that gets better every time you watch it and really starts to get good on <laughs> yeah. the seventh viewing. Yeah, I know. That's kind of hard to convince people of that. Yeah. This Would movie works well the first time yeah, through. Yeah, I think so, too. So, yeah, there you go. On to spoilers. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. I don't want to spoil the party, All right. So one of the problems I had was with editing, especially given the fact that this movie is waited. Er, we've waited so long to see this movie. It's been on the shelf for, what, five years? No, two Months. or three years. Two or three years. Yeah, yeah. They, they were talking about it a couple of three years ago. I know it's been on the shelf, and it was – I'm not sure how long it was that they filmed it, ago that it was that they filmed it. But in terms of uh, – the amount of money that they've put into it in post-production, I couldn't understand why they couldn't keep a consistency with the cut, with the shot counter shot of the interrogation scene with Blueface, because that blue makeup pattern was all over the place. It was like watching Rorschach from the Watchmen. And I'm wondering if you noticed that. And if you didn't, it might be something that I'm seeing that's not there, or it might be something that Shane Black is doing on purpose to point to go back to a 1970s type movie where you didn't have the ability to go make multiple cuts and do multiple things because there there were other parts like that in the movie that are just kind of callback tonally mm-hmm. to 1970s action movies and I'm wondering if maybe do you have anything No to say? I, I didn't okay. notice the the blue face makeup changing from shot to shot I noticed a lot of times if you're talking shot counter shot a lot of times the conversations between Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe 
didn't always follow the 180 rule where like one actor is looking to the left and the other actor is looking to the right so and it matches issues. up. Yeah, but for whatever reason, it worked. A lot of those shots were when they're in the car having conversations. Like, they'd both be looking to the left. Right. Uh, but it, for whatever reason, I was still able to follow it. It was still yeah, working. It, it, that's what, I mean, it, well, that's a little bit different because those are taking different shots at different times. But something where you could potentially CGI stuff back in, like the blue face thing. Or there's one scene that happens, and we're in spoilers, so it's okay, they're in a <laughs> hot tub. The fight scene with David, Keith David, and Russell Crowe's character. One of the cuts, I'm pretty sure Russell Crowe is wet, and he hasn't been dunked in the water yet. And then they go back to something else, and then then he gets dunked in the water. And I was like, wow, that is discontinuous. And I was like, is that even there? Am I like I? I stopped myself, and I might, it might not have been there, but you didn't notice that either. I didn't notice that, but a lot of times those fight scenes, you re-edit them. But I was thinking, and there's enough other action purpose. going on. There's a lot of cross cutting because we're going and following Ryan Gosling's character. We're following right. Angori Rice's character. Well, I guess it stuck there's out to me because he was wet and then he was dry and then he gets dunked. So, uh, but I might be wrong. I, well, I, it just seemed a little. Are they going for sloppy. a certain aesthetic? I yeah, because there's that scene where they're riding in the car and Ryan Gosling nods off and then he's talking to a. a Mosquito? <laughs> like a, a bee, I think. A bee. Or a fly. Because yeah. that calls back to something else. Oh, you know, I'm getting tired. I don't think I can drive. I'm going to have to pull over. <laughs> Just let go of the wheel. And you're like, what is going on? Right. Clearly, that's an homage. Right. The thing that sets that up, though. All right. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. Because, right. I, it's, well, I'm not sure if it's an editing problem or not. But it is a story problem. The reason that they're in that car driving somewhere is is not it it makes no sense it's not fully explained to the audience and it doesn't even make any sense afterwards really yeah they were trying to get him out of the house so that the hitman can come no it makes no, no sense for them to go it makes no sense for them to go together to to do this thing that doesn't make a whole lot of sense for anybody to do at all and it's not it's it 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 just it's it's not that it doesn't ring true and it doesn't necessarily have to ring true. It just doesn't seem tight. It doesn't seem like there are other they mechanisms. A better motivation for wanting to go and make this payoff for well, even that payoff of what? Like who are they paying off and what are they they're, doing? They're just they're, doing a favor for their benefactor. Why it doesn't? Oh, it, to me, I saw that. That's complete homage to Bid Lebowski and the drop off that they have to do in that movie. Except in the middle of that, you get this weird fly. Well, because you had to somehow come up with a way for them to get the briefcase open and I, find out that it's all a I don't, ruse. I don't have a problem with its existence. It just seems you can have a tighter sequence of events. For example, there's this weird sexual tension that exists between Gosling's character and the character that gives him the call to to do this drop or to make this drop. And it doesn't it it doesn't hold up. There's like there's something missing. There's like a scene that's been cut that would explain why they they're attracted to each other. Or even that they're attracted to each other is just sort of a natural thing that happens in the middle of the movie, and it bumps me out of the movie when when it's not, it's not with a movie like this that has so many different plot points and it's a noir type thing and it's a detective story. It's okay for me if you go from point A. To point Q, 
if you don't necessarily go in a progression, as long as you go back and fill in the blanks with C, D, mm-hmm. and F. I don't, I'm not saying you necessarily have to do that and they all have to be connected, but it's a lot more satisfying to me as a viewer to be able to piece together the movie when it's all over and it can have a satisfying ending. With The Big Lebowski, even though it's convoluted and there are a lot of like directions it doesn't necessarily follow up on, at the end, it all sort of fits together and makes sense. I mean, at the end, it all it fits together quite satisfyingly. And everything makes sense, and all the characters' movements are consistent with who they are and what they do. You know, uh, what they who they are and what they stand for, you know. So, Lebowski is a good comparison, tonally, but in terms of a story, it's a much tighter story. And as a viewer, if I'm trying to noodle through it, I'm having a much better time. Yeah, this movie I, so I understand why you say all those things, and I agree that uh, Ryan Gosling's character doesn't seem to have much of a connection to Tally. Isn't that the character name played by Yaya DaCosta? Right, the, uh, I, the uh, assistant to Kim Basinger's character. Mm-hmm. You could have either used another scene with the two of them flirting in some way, or if you had Ryan Gosling being preoccupied with the other sets throughout the whole movie, which... I bet is what they were doing. And yeah, then at, in the editing uh, process, they went, wow, we've already made Ryan Gosling a drunk. Now, if he's also a womanizer, skirt chaser, it's really hard to get behind this guy and really like him. So let's lose some of those, you know, bits and parts of scenes where he's chasing after women so that he's a little bit more likable. Cause right now, if he's just kind of a drunk bumbling idiot, we can take that. I guess, that's what i think happened all right what really happened who knows we'll have to wait for the deleted scenes maybe a, an in-depth interview with shane black if we can get him on the show <laughs> i'm working on that fingers crossed <laughs> tweet him out i guess i'm just not convinced that he had an idea of where he wanted to go he didn't he didn't wrap it all up enough for me and he just kind of wanted to have these situations where he could play these riffs sort of like um well, it's they, not a cohesive song. It's just a bunch of individual scenes that work sort of well, but they don't work as an album. kind of goes back to the B thing later on when Ryan Gosling sees Nixon in the pool. Yeah, I mean... That, and imagines that. I mean, so he's kind of referencing back to that so it works. You know, Ryan Gosling's a bit of an unreliable narrator when he's alone. Well, there's also the fact that to me, he gets wildly drunk sort of randomly and then immediately sobers up. And then he's okay with drinking some more later on and he's not really focused on anything that's important. I, I don't know. He drinks like it's a 1940s film or he's in a Hemingway novel. But he, but those in the 40s or those characters in Hemingway and the hard-boiled detectives... They don't get sloppy drunk to the point where they're, you know, falling down constantly and then, you know, sliding down hills and stuff and haphazardly winding up in certain situations. And like I say, it's just sort of random and things just sort of exist for the gag and then don't really fit together well. Okay. Well, let overall. me ask you this. In Columbo, wasn't he kind of trying to play like he was a drunk? I never really watched Columbo. That, that's always the feeling I got that Peter Falk was going for. Like he was just kind of this bumbling idiot. But he might've been doing that to put people off as yeah. opposed to actually being drunk. Well, that's where I think Shane Black's <laughs> yeah. like, well, yeah, let's actually make the detective a drunk. 
I don't know. I, I think it's the wounded fragility of their precarious situation, and that's what part of what. He well, they never explain why Russell, uh, Russell Crowe doesn't drink. Yeah, and I, I have no problem with that. I think he's drinking <laughs> at the end. Yeah, oh, he drinks at the very end. Yeah, yeah. I think he's. They're they're both wearing their wedding rings in weird places. So I I, I like that there's not a clear backstory on Russell Crowe. I just don't like that the story that we have on film doesn't sort of it doesn't really fit together very well for me. Right. It just so much of the movie works so well together. It's like harmonic symph- symphony, 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 <laughs> harmonic symphony. symphony. So the aperiodic missteps just count as noise. Uh, yeah. Those things didn't bother me as much. I just kind of like it. It was inventive storytelling and where you're going, eh, I'm not real sure why they're doing this. I kind of like not being able to figure out where they're going. All right. I, and I don't mind it is possible. I just like to be able to look back like, and see how they got there. I didn't mind that Tally could not keep her balance and kept knocking herself out at the end of the film. Tally's the one that gets shot. Well, yeah, she she's she's the uh, the woman McGuffin. from Detroit who you know yeah is the daughter. Yeah, the, the daughter. No, 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 no. 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 Yeah, Kim Basinger's assistant when she's got the drop oh, yeah, on the yeah, guys well, with the film well, and she gets the cold coffee. Thrown on her, she slips and falls, knocks herself out, and then later on she's diving to grab the film, <laughs> and she hits the balcony railing and knocks herself out. I didn't mind that stuff. I, it was okay. It was I a little a, Pratt folly and a little too Deus Ex Machina. Well, no, the whole thing at the end was just a cartoon, and th- and as I was watching, I was thinking, meh, cartoon. Okay, just the fact that he's chasing after a film that oh, that's up very eighties actiony film kind yeah, of stuff. I, I felt satisfying. I liked it. I also love they have these puny guns. Yeah. I mean, nowadays, if you did a movie, you'd have guys with big old hand cannons. Uh They all have really small, dinky guns, I felt. You know, they're shooting a bunch, but you never really felt like there was a danger with what they were shooting. Uh, Uh, Russell Crowe has the ankle holstered gun, right? This little tiny thing. Gosling's like, wow. Does it bother you that he never uses it? Well, that turns out to not be real because that was during the dream sequence. Oh, really? Yeah. So that's right before the flash shows up. I, but I just like, oh, it's a okay. dinky little gun. All right, all I was guns. thinking that was a Chekhov's gun thing that you would have been upset about. No, well, because they come back to it and show that it's not there. Right. Okay. So they subvert my yeah, understanding. I, I thought that there was a lot going on there, so I. I I enjoyed it. To me, the film worked well. I would love to see more films like this. I'd like to see Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe team up and do a lot more films together. I think they're the closest we have right now to Paul Newman and Robert Redford as far as just a funny buddy team up. I That's mean, huge rarefied air. I mean, you're talking about who else guys would you rather see team up? <laughs> if you could pick any two actors in Hollywood and they just uh-huh. have that innate chemistry with each other. Ryan Reynolds... And uh, Tony Stark. What's that guy's And name? Robert Downey Jr.? Robert Downey Jr., yeah. Have they done a movie together? No, but they should. You just think that they're yeah. going to have that chemistry. And I, like I mean, the, do you want to I like see the Ben Affleck of the and Matt Damon do another film together? Yeah, yeah just not Batman. Just not but, a Batman. I mean, you just hear born. these two are teaming up to do a film you know together. Good? You have to go in knowing nothing I, about the plot. I just watched Rounders the other day, and uh, Matt Damon and uh, Ed Norton were excellent together in that movie so that's your team up yeah or ed norton and nick cage 
Ed Norton, Nick Cage. I'm putting together two random uh, oh, okay. actors that, that haven't worked together before. But you're putting Ryan Gosling and Russell Crowe's team up in the rarefied air of the two greatest buddy, you know, bromances of of in history. I'm saying this is in line with them in The Sting, like that. I know, not but that's what in the Sundance Kid level. But still, I like I said that there that's a list, a team. Those are the if you go buddy bromances, bromance, top ten bromances. Newman and uh, Reynolds are number one, right? Yeah. So, but, but you also got Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. Up yeah, but there. that's not up there. Really, that doesn't make your top ten. I don't know. Something about the buddy cop picture that relies on that sort of racial tension is. I don't know if it's pandering or like Nick Nolte and uh, Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy yeah, in 48 yeah, Hours. Yeah. I mean, that that's a trope. And they, I think they played up with Owen Wilson and Jackie Chan. You know, two guys of disparate races get together to perform. Yeah, I, but I still think Mel Gibson and Danny Glover, they just, they had some honest chemistry. chemistry, yeah, and they could just play off of each other. This might be part of the reason, though, that the movie's not highly successful in the box office. So you say 11 million, that's a lot more than what I thought. Eleven million leads me to believe it'll make its money back. Maybe uh, I mean eventually. Plus, mm-hmm. I don't need, know that counts anything overseas. But if they had put a black actor in the place of one of these guys, if they had put, say, Denzel Washington against Ryan Gosling, you might have had a better chance to do better in the box office. And Denzel Washington could have played R- Russell Crowe's ro- role. Yeah, I- maybe not as well. I mean, we would have done it differently. But it, I mean, that you would have had box office gold. No, I, I agree, but I feel like Denzel's already done that in a movie called Two Guns, where he starred across from Mark Wahlberg. Uh, and yeah. I think the problem with Denzel Washington is he has to be Denzel Washington. He can't take a bat seat in some of the scenes like Russell Crowe can. But if he or could. He has. If he yeah. could. <laughs> yeah, if, Rus- if Denzel Washington could dial it back. Isn't that a It'll be interesting of... to see how he does in The Magnificent Seven, where yeah. he has to share the screen with a lot of other big-name actors. You know, I had to stop watching that trailer at oh, The Nice Guys. Good. I don't, this is another, I wanted to ask you about this. Arguably the funniest scene in the movie that we just watched. Thanks guys. If there's, if there's five top funny scenes, one of the top five, if not the funniest scene is, is the bathroom scene when he's having a hard time putting on his pants and keeping the door open Mm -hmm. and Russell Crowe is sort of intimidating him. That scene is hilarious. It's in the trailer almost completely. The whole thing is in the trailer. You've seen the trailer. You probably saw that before the movie. So when you saw that on screen, you had a very different experience than I did. I was able to enjoy it for its originality and what they were doing, and it carried me through. But because you knew what was going to happen, my guess is you didn't have the same level of enjoyment. But I'm wondering if you feel that that doesn't matter because you're not trailer-averse like I am. No. But if seeing the trailer afterwards and seeing all the stuff that's in the trailer, that's in the movie, I would be, I would be pissed. No. How come? Why is that? How come you don't Simple. get that? Because as far as trailers <laughs> have to advertise a movie, they have to tell you what the movie's going to be like, you know, capture the tone of a film. If anything, uh, to me, a trailer crime is when the trailer hints at a completely different type of film than what I get. Like what they're afraid of with Suicide yeah. Squad. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is I like trailers that only focus on the first third or so of the film. And that scene that we're referencing, the bathroom scene uh, at the bowling alley, comes in the first third of the movie, probably the first 20 minutes of the film. Yeah. And it's setting up that these two guys don't like each other, but then they're 
they begin to work with each other through uh, how the movie develops the situations. You know, they're forced together. So that shot works in a lot of different ways. It conveys the humor, conveys a lot of stuff with plot, and it's coming at the beginning of the film. So I think you're allowed to use it. If anything, you should get mad that there weren't more funny bits at the end. No, I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know that if there were or there weren't funny bits here and there. Well, don't I mean, put your biggest laugh thing. in the first 20 minutes of the film. Well, Black might argue that there are funny laughs at the end of the movie, too. And and this is just a function of how well that scene went off. I mean, it was a well-written scene. It was well-acted, well-blocked. So I don't, you know, I I don't think it set a tone that was hard to keep up with. So having it there is fine for me. But seeing it in a trailer and then coming in and seeing it later, it just... It, so you want to do the lesser jokes? Because then well, the, yeah, I the risk love- you run... Is if you put in jokes that aren't terribly funny, people are going to go, this ain't much of a comedy. But see, I don't think it's going to make any difference one way or the other. I I mean, it does to me, to my enjoyment, my personal enjoyment, it does. I think the vast majority of people aren't that aware of what they're consuming when they're consuming trailers. So they see that and they think, eh, funny thing, uh, that's Russell, Russell Crowe, Ryan Gosling in the bathroom. <laughs> if advertising wasn't effective, studios wouldn't spend tens of millions of dollars every you, year on You have to admit that some trailers go too far and some of them might, in fact, be ineffective. There was no reason, there was no, nothing to be gained, as far as I'm concerned, with showing Spider-Man, for instance, in any of the Civil War uh, movie trailers. When he appears in the movie, it sort of comes out of the blue. And it's a, it's a great scene. It's a great series of scenes. And it, I mean, it doesn't, it, maybe it doesn't match up very well or fit very well with some, some of the characters' intentions. And in that sense, it's, it sort of becomes a distraction. But nevertheless, he's sort of a scene, a scene stealing, uh, character. Yeah. And there wasn't one person that went to go see that movie, Civil War. Because Spider-Man was in the trailer or because they found, I mean. Disagree completely. All right. I don't think so. Because I think I the think movie made 180 million or whatever it made, 127 million or whatever, the opening weekend, set 179 million. And the reason that it did that is because it's an Avengers movie. Spider-Man being in that movie, it could be referenced, but it doesn't have to be in the trailer. I, I have All to right. politely disagree because. Fair enough. As you're marketing Captain America Civil War, you have to be, you don't want the, tagline to be come see all the people from age of ultron fight not the bad guys but each other so instead in the marketing campaign after you have the first trailer come out and you see all the normal people you know that you expect to see you introduce the two new characters spider-man and black panther and you let them have a quick little hero moment so you go wow both those guys look kind of cool there's something new and additional that this film is offering me plus the gag of Spider-Man appealing, appearing at the end of that trailer where he steals Captain America's shield, that's a great gag, and that's a great moment for the audience watching the trailer go, oh, wasn't expecting that. But that gag doesn't work in the movie because we've already met Spider-Man. We've already been to his house, and we've had that whole Robert Downey Jr. scene. Uh, which I'm is a great argument new reveal again, of Spider-Man. There are two reveals of Spider-Man that work in that film. Why not throw one of them in the trailer? Well, you're talking now because it it it's a reveal for the trailer, and maybe yeah, ooh, that's an awesome trailer. And if you're trailer, going but- to put Spider-Man in the film, why not advertise him? That's like advertising a fight card for MMA or boxing, and not 
uh, telling everyone, oh, look, we've brought back this famous boxer. Well, this guy that you all know, but we're not going to advertise he's on the card. It'll be an Easter egg, a special bonus treat for all of you. I mean, I'm, I'm not the only one to use ridiculous, uh, uh, metaphors (laughs) that nobody really attaches to. However, that being said, I'm not, I don't, trailers can exist in their, and function the way that they do without revealing as much as, as they do. And, and to spoil things for me as a moviegoer mm-hmm. is, uh, well, that's the reason why I don't watch them, but I, I think it's, it's, it shows a disconnect between the artists who are putting together the film. And maybe it doesn't count so much with a movie like, uh, Captain America, but where it's a lot of it's like studio interference anyway. But if, if a film writer or filmmaker is putting together a movie that has some plot twist in it and it's in the trailer or the ending of the movie, the entire arc of the movie is in the trailer, then I have a problem with it and, I, and it's a, it annoys me. But also the visual things annoy me too. I agree. And we've talked a lot about yeah, trailers we before. We all about trailers. I do think that there are some rules you should follow for trailers. I do agree there are a lot of bad trailers. Keep them about two minutes. Stay in at least the first half of the movie, preferably the first third. But and it doesn't bother you when they don't do those rules, when they don't follow Bull's rules. Oh, I think for that trailer. those are bad moves then. I think the two examples we talked about, for the most part, follow those rules. I realize the airport fight scene yeah, is yeah. that is further away, but... All right. Yeah. All right, one more thing about this movie. They don't even really deal with collateral damage very well. And I'm wondering if that's a callback to the 70s. Oh, yeah. Aesthetic. What, you want to worry about all the pe- random people that get shot? I kind of like that random people get shot. Just random people just get shot. <laughs> I like that the bullets go somewhere. Bullets just something. fly somebody and they hit people. Well, that's realistic. If you're shooting they, all those bullets. They hit women who are uh, acting as tables. <laughs> I don't know if that really happens. Well, early There's like on. a couple of times there's women like in tables. That's their job. It's to be in. Yeah, uh, early on, Russell Crowe when the two henchmen fire at him. <laughs> yeah. The woman in the apartment next door gets hit. Oh, that's another thing. The uh, blind red herrings in this movie are too. Uh, I mean, there's too many things that happen that are, that they leave out. That <sighs> all right? Since we're in the second half of the review, when they go to the burnt out house, which the whole that whole plot, the whole plot is ridiculous and stupid. The fact that uh, uh I mean, a w- w- they're trying to like expose that catalytic converters are are bad for. The atmosphere or something when this group of activists have decided to make a porno movie to so show what it doesn't that's just ugh. there are so many elements of this movie if you broke them down yeah i know they is, don't say that it is the plot right. of the bit lebowski all right it is uh, yeah but i'm not uh, i think that my I, I can't remember where the hell is oh when they go to the burnt out You're house curmudgeonly no, I'm not being curmudgeonly. I'm just saying the things that, that don't work for me. That when they go to the burnt out house and they're standing in the burnt out house, they, they make a point to show that there's someone in the house behind them that sees them at the house. There's some witness that they focus on that has seen them, has seen this house and they saw how it burned down. And they, they put it in, they put this person as either a man or a woman. You can't really tell, but they, they put him prominently in screen. And then they never come back to it. They just never, it's just left off. And to me, uh, again, I was like, I kept wanting to come back to this thing. I don't remember it being that prominent. All right. I thought it was prominent. It it didn't really catch my attention. Fair enough. 
But when I rewatch this film, which I cannot wait to do, I will look to see how wet Russell Crowe gets when he fights. Yeah, you can look for all the standing in the background. Continuity errors. All right, let me ask you this, then. How do they wind up in the house where the old woman saw Misty Mountains? Because the old woman comes to Ryan Gosling's house, and Ryan Gosling suddenly has that eureka moment as he's talking to her. Wait, you saw her? She was dead. There's no way. Oh, wait, the film. So he tells the woman, you got to drive us to where you saw your... I thought the woman showed up there while they were there. No, she showed up to Ryan Gosling's house. All right. So then, because they had just gotten delivered there by the Tatsy Maybe I'm just not a careful movie watcher. I don't know. (laughs) Plot hole. No, it's not a plot hole. It's just... No, that... that, Contrivance. It's a contrivance. Contrivance, sure. But I do think it it does follow a somewhat logical... I I would have liked that to have been tighter. That subplot and that tie-in, too, have been tighter. So I Fair think, enough. given the amount of time that they had, they could have made a tighter movie. But I said the same thing about Green Room, and Green Room is probably my favorite movie of the year so far. So Green Room's your number one. Green probably, Room's in my top three, I'd say. You know what's up there? The Bronze? The Vich. Oh, okay. Surprisingly. Because it's, it's not an enjoyable movie. The Bronze is probably up there, too. The Bronze, The Vich, Green Room. Nice guys might be tailing in. Nice guys, uh, yeah. Hope so. It's not a Hopefully, bad... this weekend when I go see X Men Apocalypse, that'll be yeah. pretty up there. Let me know. You and uh, Tony C. will be doing the show. Yeah, I hate that now I have to go to the movies alone for the next week. Bring week Tony and a half. C. with you. Yeah, he, he lives hundreds of miles oh. away, and right. shockingly, he doesn't want to travel during Memorial Day weekend. <sighs> I can't Skype him in. Uh, yeah, we'll be Skyping, so. How are you going to do, how are you going to go to the movie, like, when are you going to go to the movie? Going to go to the movie Friday, Friday after, right after, after school. school, yeah. Up here in Gloucester, if anyone wants to come watch with me. Oh, so you and hopefully, four other people will be there? Hopefully no one says. Thir- are you going to try to go Thursday and, re- like, an early review show? No, I'm not going to do the early review. I got stuff on Thursday where I can't do it, but, yeah, if you're listening to this and it's not after about four o'clock on Friday... Head up to Gloucester. I'll be at York River Crossing right. watching uh, X-Men Apocalypse. That's going to be episode 150. Of course, next week we've already pre-recorded an episode of We Laugh. Yeah. So we get to hear your dulcet tones for <laughs> the can. next two weeks on the We Laugh. Even if I die. Uh, yeah, we wish you good luck <laughs> yep. on your surgery and a rapid recovery so that you can come back and review more movies. And uh, if you can't, uh, I just want to let you know you will be replaced. <laughs> You won't be missed. You'll be right. missed, but replaced. All right. Good luck trying to find someone, you know, that's funny on the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, <laughs> in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Robert Downey Jr.'s character, Harry, says something to which I can really relate. Wow. I feel sore. I mean, physically. Not like a guy who's angry in a movie in the 1950s. So, for Mr. Uh, Two Frames Ryan Bull over there, Been a pleasure. I'm Richard Glossclear, Old Train Boxing. Boom them, everybody. There be dragons. Are you going to the movies this weekend? Let Laugh know what you saw. Send in your review by emailing the show at thelaughpodcast at gmail.com, tweeting at the Laugh Podcast, or messaging us on facebook.com backslash thelaughpodcast. The best comments will get read on a future show. All right, uh, this is episode 148. Welcome.
No. <laughs> Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. <laughs> Get your cough out. <laughs> this is the good stuff. Yeah. Episode 148. Is that right? Yeah. How can that be? 148. Oh, 150 is next week. That's yeah, right. We're already, not there for yeah, the special oh, show. All right. Got to do it again. Imagine <laughs> that. <laughs> Math.